That's a clown question, bro. Hi, what's up, Bunny? So I'm gonna kick some dirt. He gets on base. Just a bit outside. I'm not the type of player that's gonna be Johnny Hustle. If you don't want me to watch the ball, you can go get it out of the ocean. And welcome to the show to be named later. We're talking baseball, kind of whenever. I am your host, Chris Gianta. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, I'm doing well. We got a blast from the past today. I mean, literal power. I mean, we got one of the best power hitters of all time. We got the Bash Bros. We got the Athletics, the Philadelphia Athletics, and the Oakland Athletics. Yeah. We, uh, we have some, uh, yeah, we have some power. We have some, some A's, uh, luckily, luckily I played for the A's in instructional league baseball when I was six. And this actually isn't my hat. It's my dad's hat from when he was nice. coaching. So yeah, in order to celebrate, we have that. Yeah. This is, this is a straight A's show. Yeah. This is all A's and part one is going to be featuring Jimmy Fox, who um, definitely was a product of the 1920s, 1930s uh, offensive surge. Mm-hmm. He had an unbelievable, um, unbelievable offensive numbers throughout his career in terms of all facets, average, on-base percentage, slugging, OPS, home runs, RBI, uh, for anyone who's really into that, everything, everything hitting, uh, John, uh, Jimmy Fox was really, really good at. Um, so That's I guess right. we start, we start the Jimmy Fox story where he was born in Sudlersville, Maryland, and his, uh, his father played baseball at a young age and he instilled his love of baseball into young jimmy fox and according to family legends he actually jimmy fox actually tried to run away uh to join the military at the age of 10 uh, after hearing about his father's military exploits in the civil war probably had some uh some good you know a good military background uh being on that side from maryland and uh, Jimmy's parents were successful farm tenants, and he worked many hours on the farm. He worked many hours on the farm, and uh, ultimately, that gave him a pretty good physique, um, especially for athletic, uh, as, you know, a good athletic build. And with this physique, uh, in school, he set a variety of local tracks uh, track records while he was in school and the Eastern shore league, which was a class D minor league uh, brought a team to Easton, Maryland and Frank home run Baker, who has been referenced He's a Hall of previously on the show. One of the better names in baseball, Frank home run Baker, a Maryland native and the player manager of this Easton team uh, in the class D minor leagues. Uh, he actually uh, caught wind of Jimmy Fox's performance at Sudlersville High School, and he invited him for a tryout. And Fox, as the, as the farm boy that he is, uh, actually came to the tryout in a pair of overalls. Uh, 
wondering, you know, what else, what else could he possibly wear? And he actually told Baker that he could catch for him if uh, he needed him to for the team. And Fox was ultimately signed by this team for a salary between $125 and $250 a month. And with the team, he hit 296 with 10 home runs. And then uh, after this performance, it was decided that he was major league ready and his contract was purchased by the Philadelphia Athletics. And after the 1924 season where he played for uh, the Eastern Shore League team, he would, of course, you know, like a lot of professional baseball players do, return to school for his senior year of high school because, of course, he was only 16 uh, when he signed with the uh, professional baseball team. However, he did not finish his senior year of high school as he would go on to participate in spring training with the Philadelphia Athletics. So now he's spending his teen years in professional baseball on the bench. By the way, that is a beautiful origin story of a one Jimmy Fox. Yeah. Um, he made his major league debut on May 1st, 1925 at the age of 17 years and 191 days old. Uh, Chris, we're, we're both much older than that. And uh, looks like we're a little bit behind here. What, uh, what Jimmy Fox was doing a hundred years ago, 95 yeah. years ago, actually. And he singled in his first plate appearance, so that is a career 1,000 average. And he played 41 games in double-A and hit 327, so he's doing pretty well for himself early on. And he appeared in 10 games for the Athletics as a reserve catcher and a pinch hitter. In, and he compiled, compiled nine plate appearances. Probably should have had more because he went 6-for-9 with a double and a 14-44 OPS. And minimum three plate appearances, uh, which is, I mean, that's – an incredible sample size it is the, <laughs> oh that is a wow minimum three plate appearances it is the highest average obp slugging and ops in a season by a player in their age 17 or younger season of course, that, is minimum, that is minimum three plate appearances <laughs> he played in 26 games in 1926 uh he went down, though, which maybe because he had more than three plate appearances. He had a 771 OPS win 35 plate appearances, and he appeared in 61 games in 1927, compiled a 323 average and a 908 OPS in 147 plate appearances. So pretty good power surge for him in, uh, in 1927, being able to spray the gaps more. So then he starts contributing to pennants and championships at the ripe age of 20 in 1928. So in, or was this 21 years old? I don't know. Anyway, 20, he was, yeah. he was young. He was young. And by May 12th, he made himself a starter at third base and first base. He finished ninth in average with a 328, fifth in OPS with a 964, fifth in OPS plus with a 148 while still playing 118 games and compiling 473 plate appearances. He also hit 330 with runners in scoring position and he finished second, seventh in war on both websites. That's correct. Both baseball reference and fan graphs had him in the top 10 in war as he was a 20 year old and the athletics went 98 and 55 and finished two and a half games behind the first place Yankees during this season. And this was a pretty stacked team, you know, filled with 
young talent who is ready to surge like Jimmy Fox and also some old talent, some legends. And the 1928 Athletics had eventual Hall of Famers Ty Cobb, Tris Speaker, Eddie Collins, Mickey Cochran, Al Simmons, and Lefty Grove, all on that 1928 team. Now, not all of them were at their best. Uh, Eddie Collins played a very minor role. He only played, he only got 36 plate appearances in 1928. And uh, Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker retired after 1928. But still, Jimmy Fox, Mickey Cochran, Al Simmons, and Lefty Grove were still playing in their best years, setting up for a good future for the Philadelphia Athletics. So in 1929, Jimmy Fox became a uh, regular starting first baseman, kind of claimed his spot as the first baseman of the Philadelphia Athletics. And he was doing unbelievable this year. Through July 2nd, he was hitting 413 with a 1200 OPS. And he was also hitting 400 as late as July 12th. And in his first 95 games, he reached base safely in 88 of those games. And that is the most amount of games that a player younger than 22 has reached base safely in their team's first 95 games. And in those first 95 games, the Philadelphia Athletics were doing just as well as Jimmy Fox was. Uh, the Athletics went 70 and 25. Uh, Jimmy Fox in 1929 ended up finishing fifth in average with a 354, second in OPS with a 1088, second in OPS plus with a 173, and second in weighted runs created plus with a 176. He also hit 365 with runners in scoring position. And he also finished second in B War and led the league in Fangraphs War. And with this 1929 season, uh, he became the first player in their age 21 season or younger to hit 350 plus with 30 plus home runs in a season. And it has only been done once since then. And his on-base percentage and OPS are still the highest in a single season with 250 plus plate appearances by a player in their age 21 season or younger. And the Philadelphia Athletics would end up going 104 and 46 and won the pennant by an 18 game margin, punching an easy ticket uh, to the World Series. And in game one of the World Series, uh, both the Cubs and the A's had yet to score when uh, Jimmy Fox came up to bat in the seventh. So Fox promptly hit a solo home run to break the tie in a game that the A's would eventually win three to one. So we broke the tie. The A's eventually won game one. Uh, Fox on the day was two for four. And in game two of the World Series, both the Cubs and A's had yet to score when Jimmy Fox came up to bat in the third inning, this time with two men on and two men out. And Fox promptly hit a three-run home run to break the tie and this was in a game that the A's would eventually win 9-3. So he hit the go-ahead home run in each of the first two A's victories in the 1929 World Series. Fox would end up going 3-5 for five in the day in Game 2. And Jimmy Fox, with those two home runs, remains 
the only player younger than 25 in baseball history to hit a home run in each of his first two career postseason games. How about that? And uh, unfortunately, in game three for the A's, both Jimmy Fox and the rest of the lineup were silent uh, in, a, in game three of the World Series in a three to one loss. And heading into the bottom of the seventh of game four, Oakland Athletics were down, or the Philadelphia Athletics were down eight to nothing to the Cubs, almost guaranteeing a loss. According to baseball reference, they had a 1% chance of winning at that point. So in the bottom of the seventh, Al Simmons hit a home run to lead off the inning, making it eight to one. Then Jimmy Fox hit a single and then was moved to second on another single and then was driven in on another single to make it an eight to two ball game, making it somewhat interesting then later in the inning fox came up again with men on first and second in an eight to seven game and fox hit a single to drive in the tying run and the athletics would have would score two more in that inning and win the game 10 to 8 after putting up a 10 spot in the bottom of the seventh unreal then in game five of the World Series, with a chance to clinch, the Philadelphia Athletics offense was silent all day, and they were down once again late in the game, this time two to nothing, heading into the bottom of the ninth. Uh, Walt French of the Athletics struck out to lead off the inning. Then Max Bishop hit a single, followed up by a Mule Haas home run to tie up the ball game. Uh, Mickey Cochran grounded out uh, to give to make it two outs in the bottom of the ninth and then Al Simmons doubled to bring up Jimmy Fox the hero of the 1921-1929 World Series up to that point but the Cubs did the smart thing and they intentionally walked Jimmy Fox and then Bing Miller the next hitter single to drive in Al Simmons to win the World Series and make Jimmy Fox a World Series champion, and he definitely earned it as he hit 350 with a 1081 OPS in that World Series. Uh, very impressive for the 21 year old. So now in 1930, Jimmy Fox and the A's have a target on their backs, and 1930 holds the highest MLB season for average OBP and OPS, which is 296, 356, and 790. Uh, in the modern era, so 120 years of baseball, we've never seen a league-wide offensive surge quite like what we've seen in 1930. And Jimmy Fox was very much a part of that. He hit 335 on the season. Normally, that's good enough for a batting title. That's exactly what Tim Anderson hit in 2019. But Jimmy Fox finished 14th in average. His 156 RBIs ranked third, and he hit 382 with runners in scoring position. He finished fourth in OPS with a 1066, fourth in OPS plus with a 161, and fourth in weighted runs created plus with 160. These are usually stats that lead the league. Uh, and he finished fifth in B war and fifth in F war. Him and Ted Williams are tied for the most seasons of 450 plus plate appearances and a 950 plus OPS before their age 22 season. They each have three. He, Ted Williams, Mel Ott, Ty Cobb, and Mike Trout are tied for the most seasons of 450-plus plate appearances and an OPS plus of 145 or higher 
through their age 22 season, each with three. And the Athletics that year, they went 102 and 52 and won the pennant once again. So Fox hit safely in each of the first four games of the World Series. The Athletics won two of them and lost two. In game five of the World Series, each team had yet to score heading into the top of the ninth. Then Mickey Cochran walked and Al Simmons popped up, bringing up Fox to play with one man on and one man out. And yet, of course, he hit a home run to right or to he had a home run to give the A's the lead and they would win two to nothing on Fox's heroics. And Fox went one for three with a walk in a seven to one win in game six. And he would become a two time World Series champion back to back in the World Series. He hit safely in all six games with a 30, 333 average and a 1058 OPS. So he is he is at his best in early October. So now we move on to 1931. Uh, this was a bit of a setback season for Fox as he had knee and foot injuries throughout the season and was developing a sinus problem, which would uh, be a reoccurring thing for him, unfortunately, for the rest of his life. But on the field, he finished eighth in OPS with a 947, 9th in OPS plus with a 140, and ninth in weighted runs created plus with 139. He hit 350 with runners in scoring position and finished 10th in F4. The Athletics went 107 and 45 and won the pennant by a 13 and a half game margin. They had it all done away with two weeks left in the regular season. And then in game one of the World Series, with the game tied two to two, bases loaded in the third, Fox hit a two run single in a game where he went two for four and the A's won six to two. In game two, he went one for two with two walks and a two nothing loss. So obviously now it's tied one to one. Game three, he went 0 for 2 with two walks and a 5-2 loss. Pretty quiet at the plate, but was still getting his walks in. Game four, he went 1 for 3 with a home run, an RBI, and a walk in a 3-0 win. So now it's tied 2-2. Two two. Game five, 2 for 3 with a walk and a 5-1 loss. Game six, 2 for 5 in an 8-1 win. And then in game seven, he went quietly going 0 for 4 in a 4-2 World Series loss. Fox as a whole hit 348 with a 946 OPS series and he had 16 games uh where he reached base within those three world series and are the most in such games a player's ever reached base in a world series before turning 24. so jimmy fox was making history uh pretty early on in his career making an impression um you know it does help that he was able to you know, get to those World Series, but he was a big part of those World Series. He earned uh, every every single plate appearance in those World Series. And now we go into uh, what we call the pennantless prime of Jimmy Fox's career. And, you know, we talked about um, how great his regular season stats were from, you know, 1921, 1929 to uh, 1931, but he's just kind of getting started. But unfortunately, the teams are not exactly keeping up with him so in 1932 uh, he has the season of his life so through may 26th he was hitting 446 with a 1417 ops also 15 home runs and 45 rbi and his 15 home runs through the athletics first 35 games are the most home runs through a team's first 35 games by a player younger than 25 in baseball history And heading into July 10th, uh, Fox had 30 home runs 
and was on pace for 58, which was uh, two off from Babe Ruth's single-season home run record. Then on July 10th, he went six for nine with a walk, three home runs and eight RBI in an 18 to 17, 18 inning win. Uh, Fox had a go-ahead single, game-tying home run, go-ahead double, and a go-ahead home run, all at different points in this crazy uh, whirlwind of a game. And he ended up with a 1.307 win probability added on the day, which was the highest win probability added in a game at the time and remains the fifth highest win probability added in a single game all time. It was a crazy whirlwind of a game and Fox was the star of it. And after that game, he was on pace for 63 home runs, which would break that single season record. So there was, so there was excitement about Jimmy Fox potentially breaking this five-year-old record. And after game one of a doubleheader on July 27th, uh, he was at 41 home runs and was on pace for 64. Um, but unfortunately in August, he injured his wrist and thumb in a household incident and his power slowed him down just enough. He still was able to get home runs, but not quite at the pace that he was at. So he was still able to hit 17 home runs in his remaining 55 games. And he came up, he came up just two home runs short of that, of at least tying uh, that single season home run record. He also finished second in average with a 364 average. And he led the league in runs scored with 151 home runs with 58 RBI with 169 slugging percentage with a 749 OPS with a 1218 OPS plus with a 207 and weighted runs created plus with a 198. He also hit 364 with runners in scoring position. So you can tell that he earned those RBIs and he came, Jimmy Fox came within, uh, as, as said before, those 58 home runs came within two of Babe Ruth's single season record. And Fox led the league in B-War and F-War. No one was within two F-War of Jimmy Fox in 1932. And his F-War actually remains the fourth highest before a player's age 25 season in a single season. And his slugging percentage remains the second highest before a player's age 25 season age 25 season in a single qualified season and Fox's 58 home runs remain the most in a single season before a player's age 26 season and only one other man has hit over 360 with 50 plus home runs like Fox did in uh, 1932 and that one man is actually Babe Ruth who is the face of this era. And it is the only season in baseball history with a 360 plus average, 50 plus home runs and 169 plus RBI. And it is the only season by a player before their age 25 season with a batting average of 360 or higher and 50 plus home runs. And it is the only season in baseball history 
with 50 plus home runs and 210 plus hits. And uh, for historical reference, in 1931, the uh, Major League Baseball indoctrinated our modern form of the Most Valuable Player Award. Uh, previously, they had an award where, you know, not you could only win the award once. You could only win the MVP once. But now it had indoctrinated its original or its modern form of the Most Valuable Player Award where anyone could win it. And Fox won the award in 1932 and uh the athletics meanwhile they went 94 and 60 but finished ultimately 13 games behind the yankees for the pennant and after the season uh it got worse for the athletics as connie mack realized he could not afford the teams that could not afford the team that he built anymore you know that pretty much a dynasty from 1929 to 1931 that team anymore especially with the depression going on and he sold jimmy dykes and mule haas who were both two plus win players in 1932 and most notably he sold off al simmons uh who was a future at the time a future hall of famer now a hall of famer and he would sell all three of those players for a total of a hundred thousand dollars so then we go into 1933 uh where interestingly enough, uh, Chicago was celebrating its centennial with the uh, Chicago World's Fair. So Chicago was founded in 1833. They were celebrating its 100th anniversary of being a city. And the mayor, Edward J. Kelly, approached the publisher of the Chicago Tribune for an idea for a major sporting event uh, for this celebration. And the publisher... Uh, eventually went to the sports editor, Arch Ward, and Ward proposed the idea for the quote-unquote game of the century at Comiskey Field, the field of the Chicago White Sox, and it would be between the best players of the American League and the best players of the National League. And the Ma and Major League Baseball saw it as, also saw it as a good way uh, to get attention on the game because you know popularity had declined since the Great Depression had started, you know, uh, people really couldn't afford to go to baseball games um, at the, the same way they did during the Roaring Twenties. And Ward, Arch Ward, uh, the originator of this idea, actually thought it was a good idea to get fans involved. So ballots to vote for players in this game of the century were printed in 55 newspapers across the country. And Jimmy Fox... Uh, ultimately to get back to him he was voted onto the team however he was a reserve uh, Lou Gehrig was voted as the starter at first base uh, the American League won this game of the century four to two but Fox did not get a plate appearance in this game and the game of the century was intended to be a one-time event but however it was such a success that the MLB decided to do it annually and call it the all-star game so there you have Jimmy Fox playing in the first all-star game ever uh, originally supposed to be a one-time event oddly enough glad it wasn't yeah so meanwhile in the 1933 season Jimmy Fox wins the triple crown with a 356 average 48 home runs and 163 RBI he also led the league in slugging with a 703 OPS with an 1153 
OPS plus with 201 and weighted runs created plus with 189. He hit 357 with runners in scoring position. And he also led in war on both websites and on fan graphs. No one was within two war of him. So he won his second consecutive MVP, becoming the first player ever to win multiple MVPs. With his 1932 and 1933 seasons, he remains the only player to have multiple seasons with 45-plus home runs and 200-plus hits before their age 26 season. He also remains the only player to have multiple seasons of 160 RBIs before their age 26 season. The Athletics went 79-72, and 72, and after the season, they traded two more Hall of Famers in Lefty Grove and Mickey Cochran. And Fox was also negotiated aggressively with Connie Mack for a pay raise, which he did eventually receive. So now we go into 1934, and he finished seventh in average with a 334, second in OPS with an 1102, second in OPS plus with 186, and second in weighted runs created plus with a 171. He also led the league in walks with 111. He finished third in BWAR and second in FWAR. He finished 10th in the MVP vote. And Fox and Babe Ruth remained tied for the most qualified seasons with an 1,100-plus OPS before their age 27 seasons. As for the athletics, they were, they were kind of skidding away. They went 68-82 and 82 and finished fifth in the American League. So as the Philadelphia athletics were starting to really show signs of not having a complete team, uh, Jimmy Fox started the 1935 season as the starting catcher uh, with the hole at the position uh, of catcher too large after Mickey Cochran was let go. Uh, but after multiple injuries of other players, uh, Jimmy Fox returned to his rightful place of first base, uh, had a pretty good season, you know, very good season, but for his standards, pretty good season. Finished third in average with a 346 average. Led the league in home runs with 36. Slugging with a 636. OPS with a 1096. OPS plus with a 182. And weighted runs created plus with 175. Led the league in all those categories. He finished third in B-War and second in F-War. And he finished 11th in the MVP vote. Uh, the Athletics, meanwhile, they... Uh, won 10 less games from the previous year, which they were already below, well below 500. They went 58-91 and finished in last place in the American League. And luckily for Fox, after the season, he was traded to the Boston Red Sox for two players and $150,000. And Fox, uh, as a result of getting traded to the Red Sox, saw a $7,000 boost in salary, which was good for him, what he wanted. Especially, especially heading into the second half of his career. And in 1936, the highlight of his season was on June 16th when he actually hit a home run out, completely out of Comiskey Park. And also in 1936, uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame announced it would be an opening in 1939, and they wanted to begin voting in 1936. So they had the uh, BBWAA write in 10 players from the 20th century, and they had a veterans committee write in five players uh, from before the 20th century uh, to induct into the Hall of Fame. 
and there was no one specifically on any ballot. Uh, you could write in any player. So active players were actually allowed. And Jimmy Fox actually got 9.2% of the vote when he was just 28 years old, still in the league, uh, getting Hall of Fame votes, which is pretty crazy. I don't know what's more impressive, Jimmy Fox getting uh, Hall of Fame votes midway through his career at age 28 or, or Ryan DePera getting MVP votes. Yeah, I have, <laughs> I have no idea. It's that, well, you, can't, you can't blame that on a misclick because there weren't clicks back then at all. Yeah, and there were. I accidentally wrote the wrong name. Sorry. Yeah, there were. uh, Maybe you checked the wrong box. Yeah, I don't know. There weren't any boxes either. You just you just wrote in, and I guess I guess people believe that Jimmy Fox should have been should have been a Hall of Famer already at the age of twenty eight, and I can't really blame them. And yeah, ultimately in the nineteen thirty six season, Jimmy Fox hit three thirty eight with a ten seventy one OPS. He hit 345 with the runners in scoring position, and he finished second in OPS, fourth in OPS plus with a 155, uh, third in weighted runs created plus with 150, and he finished seventh in B war and fifth in F war, and he would end up finishing 11th in the MVP vote. Mm-hmm. So the voting in of active pl- active players for the Hall of Fame was highly discouraged in 1937, so he did not receive any votes that year which is a shame because that would have been awesome. But in the 1937 season, the sinus problems that developed in 1931 became severe enough to provide a decline in performance for his season. And he had the worst offensive season in his career. He had the lowest average slugging OPS, OPS plus weighted runs created plus B war and F war in his career for a qualified season, but he still finished 10th in OPS with a 929 and tied for ninth in weighted runs created plus with a 125. He also hit 310 with runners in scoring position. And Fox had the most RBI before an age 30 season. How about that? Yeah, most most runs batted, most career runs batted in before turning 30, uh, basically for Jimmy Fox. And Jimmy Fox actually has a big time bounce back season in 1938. Uh, he led the league. In 1938, led the league in the entire slash line. He slashed 349, 462, 704 for an 1166 OPS. Led the league in all those categories. Also led the league in OPS plus with 183 and weighted runs created plus with 173. Also walks with 119 and runs batted in with 175. And the reason he was able to get so many RBI he hit 399 with a 1398 OPS with runners in scoring position. He also led the league in B war and F war, uh, obviously. And he won his third most valuable player award, becoming the first player ever with three most valuable player awards. And those 175 RBI that, uh, that Jimmy Fox was able to drive in, those remain the fourth most ever in a single season. It does also, his 1938 season is also the only season in baseball history with a 460 plus on base percentage and a 170 and 175 plus runs batted in. And also that was his 10th consecutive season with 30 plus home runs and 115 plus RBI. And those are the most such seasons through the age 30 season in baseball history. 
So now Jimmy Fox is about to close up the 30s with his 1939 campaign. And this year, Ted Williams started with the Red Sox. And that was when Williams began to look at Fox as a mentor and a father figure. And Fox finished second in average with a 360. He led the league in home runs with Fox. He was 464, slugging with a 694, OPS with an 1158, OPS plus with a 188, and weighted runs created plus with a 181. He finished tied for second in B-War. He actually tied with Ted Williams, and he finished second in F-War, and he finished second in the MVP vote that season. So that wraps up Jimmy Fox's uh, prime, you would say, a, a glorious eight-year stretch from 19. 19- Not a bad one. Yeah, glorious eight-year stretch from 1932 to 1939. Uh, in these eight seasons, he averaged a 341 average and 1111 OPS, 178 OPS plus, 170 weighted runs created plus, 44 home runs, and 141 RBI. That was his average season in this eight-year stretch. Also from 1932 to 1939, he led the league in runs scored, RBI, home runs, walks, B-War, and F-War, uh, led all of baseball in all those categories in that eight-year stretch. So now we head into uh, the next two years of his career where he's very good, but he's clearly showing signs of age. You know, most guys heading into their mid-30s, they're not lo- looking too bad, but because Fox had, had been playing Major League Baseball for so long, uh, it had to come at some point. And in 1940, uh, as we head into 1940, on September 4th of 1940, he hit his 499th career home run. Uh, however, in his next 14 games after that, he hit 157 with a 455 OPS and no home runs. And then on September 24th, in the first game of a doubleheader at Scheib Park against the Philadelphia Athletics, his former team, it was eight to three in the top of the sixth. Uh, Dom DiMaggio led off the inning with a triple. Then Doc Kramer drove him drove him in on a sacrifice fly to make it nine to three. Ne- the next batter, Ted Williams, hit his fifty third career home run to make it ten to three. Following him, Jimmy Fox came up, one for three on the day, and finally, Jimmy Fox hit his five hundredth career home run to make it 11 to three. And he also became the second man ever to hit 500 home runs. And the batter after Fox, Joe Cronin, uh, hit a home run of his own to make it 12 to three. And the batter after that, Bobby Doerr hit a triple and he advanced on, an, on a, he advanced to home on an error from the first baseman on that same play to make it 13 to three. And then the batter after that, Jim Tabor hit a home run to make it 14 to three. So there was a ton of scoring and Jimmy Fox's uh, 500th home run squeaked in there. Could just get muddled in muddled <laughs> right in between there. Uh, I'd, I'd like to see what that, what that inning looked like with. Uh, yeah. Imagine like if Barry Bonds hit 756 and then right after that, like, I don't know, Jeff Ken homered right after him. Yeah. I don't know if he was still on the giants then, but you get the idea. Probably not. Yeah. No, he definitely wouldn't have been there. Oh, seven. But yeah, the point, the point is, yeah, like, imagine if his his home run just happened during like a a seven run inning where the team scored on like 
five consecutive plays. (laughs) Wild. Wild turn of events for Jimmy Fox's 500th home run. And during the 1940 season, he hit 297 with a 993 OPS. Uh, That season, he finished fifth in OPS with 993, uh, fourth in OPS plus with 150, and fourth in weighted runs created plus with 147. He also finished ninth in B-War and eighth in F-War, and he finished sixth in the MVP vote. And his 12 seasons with 30-plus home runs and 105-plus RBI, his 12 seasons with 30-plus home runs and 105-plus RBI are the most such seasons before the age 33 season in baseball history. Most such seasons before the age 33 season. Jimmy Fox was getting it done early. Yeah, it was. So now we move on to 1941. Uh, With the Red Sox, Jimmy Fox definitely wouldn't be the most recognized player on this team, but his average did raise by three points. His OBP stayed the same, but his slugging dropped 76 points, and he had 17 less home runs than he did in 1940. However, he still had a 917 OPS that finished seventh, eighth in OPS plus with 139, and tied for eighth and weighted runs created plus with 36. His 13 seasons of 105 plus RBIs are the most such seasons before turning 34 in baseball history. His 14 qualified seasons with a 900 plus OPS are the most such seasons before turning the age of 34 in baseball history. So now Jimmy Fox is in and out of the game between 1942 and 45. In 42, before the season started, Fox was informed he would be ba- he would be battling for the first pace job with up and comer named Tony Lupian. Is that how to pronounce it? I think yeah. So. And despite breaking his toe in spring training, Fox still won the job, but a freak batting practice incident gave him a broken rib. 34 games into the Red Sox season. And about a week later, he was put on waivers because of one injury and was eventually sold off to the Chicago Cubs for $10,000. And with Boston, he hit 270 with an 852 OPS in 30 games. But with the Cubs, he hit 205 with a 570 OPS in 70 games. And overall, it was a 226 average with a 664 OPS in 348 plate appearances. So obviously the worst season of his to date. And even though he only had 33 RBI that year, it was still the most career RBI before turning 35 out of anyone in baseball history. So after the season, after the 1942 season, which was, especially by Fox's standards, a disaster to say the least. After the season, he announced his retirement uh, and he started to kind of begin a new life. And in 1943, he began his second marriage, and in 1944, uh, he volunteered for the military as the U.S. was in World War II, but he was rejected because of this sinus condition that he had, and he eventually came back to baseball late into the 1944 season where he was a player coach for the Chicago Cubs, uh, the team that he was on in 1942, and for the Cubs, he went one for 20 with two walks and a double. And after 1944, he came back to Philadelphia, uh, this time with the Phillies, uh, as rosters uh, from all MLB teams had been dwindled uh, due to the war, and Fox could not go to the war, so he could play baseball. 
So now Jimmy Fox is in his swan song of 1945 with the Philadelphia Phillies. He played 89 games and started 50 of them. And he put together a 268 average, 756 OPS, 113 OPS plus, and 109 weighted runs created plus. He was also willing to help out the Phillies anywhere they needed. So they asked him to pitch at times, and he did. He appeared in nine games as a pitcher and threw 22 and two-thirds innings pitch and put up a 1.59 ERA. He was really good as a pitcher, especially at that age. And after the season, he retired for good. So, uh, hey, we could have seen we could have seen the the next coming of Babe Ruth in 1945. Yeah, oddly enough, I mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, I was looking at the season. His peripherals weren't great. He had a 3.64 <laughs> FIP, but I mean, the guy was able to prevent runs. Um, yeah, as a that's all you need in 1945. Yeah, and. Yeah, as a as a thirty seven year old, as a guy who played first base his entire career, very very good, very impressive. Um, I, you know he could yeah he could have been one of the the next coming to Babe Ruth, but I guess they uh, teams didn't want that. He was fine, he was fine as just a first baseman though. So now we're in in his post career, uh, which is kind of honestly kind of uh kind of sad. Uh, honestly for for jimmy fox so divorced from his first marriage and a failed investment in a florida golf golf course that closed down to to due to war restrictions due to war restrictions uh that damaged fox's finances a divorce that's not and that's not uh wins above replacement we're talking about that's like that's real war yeah world war ii uh when Mm -hmm. when the u.s was fighting uh many different countries and uh, the the country was on a on some new laws, different laws. So golf, some golf courses were restricted for whatever reasons. And Fox went into the Red Sox radio booth in 1946 for a job, but his Maryland accent did not mix well with the audience, and uh, he did not continue with that. And because of his because of his fast rise in, in baseball and lack of schooling and, and regular life experience outside of baseball, because, you know, you're thinking Jimmy Fox, he was signed to a professional team at 16 years old. He doesn't really know life outside of playing baseball. So Fox uh, struggled to find steady work after his career. Uh, he was a minor league manager in St. Petersburg, Florida in 1947. And he was also a minor league manager in Bridgeport, Connecticut uh, in 1949. And because he shared Hall of Fame ballots with many different players throughout baseball history who had been retired and been on ballots since 1936, uh, writers were not as quick to put Fox into the Hall of Fame. And he was not alone. Many other eventual Hall of Famers from this era had this fate. Historically, there were a lot of first ballot worthy guys that didn't get on till like their fifth or sixth ballot, oddly enough. So Fox earned 6.2% of the vote in 1947, 41.3% of the vote in 1948, uh, 55.6% in 1949, 61.3% in 1950, and then 79.2% in 1951, which eventually inducted him into his rightful place in the Hall of Fame. Uh, And then in 1952, 
Jimmy Fox managed the Fort Wayne Daisies, which were a team in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. And he stopped after one season because uh, he did not like the long bus rides that that league provided. And yeah, you, you can understand that, especially 1950s travel in a, in a low budget league, you would understand. And after that season, he drifted from job to job as a car salesman working for an oil company and then working as a coal truck driver. And he also did some public service for inner city kids uh, during these years. Eventually, he went back to Florida in 1956 and spent two years as a head baseball coach for the for University of Miami. And then I guess when that season ended, he was also a hitting instructor for a minor league team called the Miami Marlins. So I guess we kind of know the origins of of that expansion name. And Fox would eventually be let go of both positions after working for them uh, for two years. Uh, this was after 1957. And when he was invited to speak at the Boston Writers Dinner in, in January 1958, uh, he admitted he did not have enough money to get there and said his earnings from baseball were now all gone. And after this uh, was public knowledge, he was offered, he was offered uh, multiple avenues for employment. And he actually got a job as a hitting instructor for the Red Sox AAA team, the Minneapolis Millers. And he was released from the job after one year, and it was stated publicly that uh, it was because the Millers wanted someone, to, uh, someone who could coach and play uh, for that job. However, this was not the real reason. The real reason was uh, Jimmy Fox had developed a drinking problem uh, that made him sort of ineffective at his job and, and hurt the team more than uh, more than, than he helped. And this would be his last baseball job, and he would mostly be out of the limelight for the rest of his life. Um, he'd be at some old-timers games, and uh, he was interviewed after Willie Mays passed him uh, in home runs, which uh, no one had passed him since he hit since he retired. But Willie Mays eventually surpassed him, and he was pretty. Uh, he was, you know, happy that it was a, a right-handed hitter. He was very, uh, very nice to uh, the fact that he was surpassed by Mays, and. On July 21st, 1967, he collapsed of what appeared to be a heart attack as he had multiple minor um, heart issues before, but it was actually him uh, choking to death, and he would be pronounced dead at the age of 59. But the post-career and how it ended up should not take anything away from what he was able to do on the field, ultimately. And... In his all-time ranks, he is 23rd in walks, 22nd in total bases, 19th in extra base hits, 19th in home runs with 534, 10th in RBI, and 5th all-time in OPS with a 1038 OPS. And he is also 28th all-time in position player B-War and 20th in position player F-War. And the legacy of Jimmy Fox is he was one of the original right-handed power hitters and also he did spectacular things at a very young age he was uh you know he was part of a big 
athletics uh, sort of peak in the late 20s, early 30s, where, you know, they won three consecutive pennants. He was a big part of all three of them. And, you know, he won, you know, pretty well into his career. He won an MVP. However, it was still before he turned 25. He was doing things at, uh, he was doing things at, at an age where a lot of guys weren't doing those sort of things. And he was also ultimately a very good postseason performer. Um, he was a big reason why the A's were able to win those two World Series in 1929 and, and 1930. His postseason OPS, uh, his career postseason OPS is 1034, right up there with his regular season greatness, um, as, as the great ones do, you know, just as good in the postseason as they are in the regular season, if not better. So yeah, that's that's the legacy of Jimmy Fox. Ultimately, uh, just one of the one of the great hitters of all time, and has always been remembered uh, as such. Yeah, I mean, you said it perfectly with one of the original right-handed power hitters. I think that is the perfect uh, legacy for him. I mean, comes up, you know, becomes the second player to hit 500 home runs. Obviously, second to Babe Ruth, um, who was a lefty. But yeah, I mean, he was. He was known as a guy who was one of the original power hitters right-handed. Also came up very early and just did it right from the start. I mean, singled in his first A.B., you know, minimum three plate appearances, the best season for 17 or younger ever. Like, he hit the ground running. It just didn't stop until until his body broke down enough for him to do so. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jimmy Fox. Uh, I mean, I think – I don't think he's really forgotten in history, and, you know, I'm glad no. that's the case um had a great peak great everything everything great about the guy and uh glad we were able to shed some light on him so i guess that leads to the conclusion of this part of the episode part one of episode 72 we hope you enjoyed watching first of all we would like to thank uh baseball reference fan graphs stat head and uh, society of american baseball research especially uh for making this for giving us the this information to make, to make this show possible. Uh, also, if you, uh, we, we know that we didn't have any videos for this episode as uh, Jimmy Fox played from 1925 to 1945. But if you want to watch uh, the show, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and want to watch us talk, go to our YouTube channel. It is called STBNL with Chris Gianta and Daniel Kern. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, uh, if you want to follow us on social media, follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Gianta. Follow Daniel on Twitter and Instagram at Daniel underscore Curran. Daniel underscore Curran. And follow the show Instagram at SPBNL Podcast. So we hope you enjoyed part one of episode 72. And we hope to see you tomorrow where we will be talking about the 1989 Oakland Athletics. See you then.